Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stott was born on 27th of April 1921. And in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Mennell, as month by month we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. When we started planning this podcast, COVID was a meaningless word and the suggestion that we wouldn't legally be permitted to meet with other people in their homes was frankly ludicrous. So I'd hoped to meet the majority of the guests for the podcast uh, in person rather than virtually and on Zoom. Well, of course, as we all know, that wasn't to be. But I'm absolutely thrilled to be now driving to Cambridge uh, to record not one, but two different conversations. And uh, the first is with Timothy Dudley-Smith. Timothy is known to millions the world over, primarily as a great hymn writer, I guess, uh, known for favourites like Tell Out My Soul, Name of All Majesty, and Lord for the Years. But he was also a bishop in the Church of England. But more relevantly for our purposes, he was, in his retirement, John Stott's official biographer. And that's a project that grew and grew, expanding the more he delved and researched, and it ended up as two weighty volumes. Well, Timothy was married to Arlette for almost 50 years, and they had three children, including Sarah Walter. And Sarah lives just around the corner from uh, Timothy, from her father, with her husband uh, uh, Giles because uh, Timothy is now 95 and we'd wondered whether or not he might need a bit of family help to jog his memory. So Sarah's going to be joining us too and to be honest I cannot wait to hear what he has to say. Do you remember the first time you met John Stott? Vividly, vividly. Was it in Cambridge? No, it was at the holiday house party at New Minister mm -hmm. that the Scripture Union ran. John was secretary, even though he was still at Cambridge. So you were there as a, as a schoolboy? I was there as a schoolboy and hardly knew anybody. Mm -hmm. I'd resisted invitations to go there for a year or two because my friend who wanted me to go kept telling me that they played games all the time, which wasn't my scene. So on about the second morning, I was coming downstairs to breakfast and the secretary, no less, was coming upstairs. So you were how old? Seventeen. Seventeen. And so I stood to one side as one would for a master of school to let him go by. <laughs> he stopped and said, to my astonishment, you must be Timothy Dudley Smith. So I said yes. So he said, well, welcome to you and, and, and talked amazingly for a couple of minutes as we went up the stairs. So that was my first meeting with him. Did you know who he was? Yes, indeed, I knew he was the very distinguished camp secretary. <laughs> that was what I thought of him. Right. He was a Ridley at that point. Right. So I then came up to Pembroke. Mm -hmm. And on, I'd never been in Cambridge before. 
literally children, not set foot in Cambridge, had you? Before? My children find it extraordinary to think <laughs> that I had not set foot in Cambridge, nor met anybody from the college or the university. It was all done on bits of paper. And by reputation. And well, yes, I not not reputable as far as I was concerned. <laughs> so anyway, the almost my first morning. I was unchaining my bicycle outside Pembroke by that letterbox <laughs> when John sailed past on his bike on the way to go down Silver Street to Ridley. <laughs> Astonishingly, except that it's what John did, he spotted me, knew my name, came over to me and said, um, welcome to Cambridge. And in a moment he said, we have the pre-terminal of the Christian Union tonight in Trinity. Um, which was his old college. Which was his, uh, can I hope to see you there? <laughs> so I had no idea what a pre-terminal was. <laughs> it sounded fatal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, he explained a little bit. And then he was about to set off again when he had a kind of second thought and said, do you know where Trinity Great Court is? I said, I have the least idea. <laughs> when he said, it's in the old accommodation room. It takes seven and a half minutes, I'll walk you there. So he propped his bicycle with mine. We walked along King's Parade across the Great Court and he threw open the doors of Trinity OCR with those great long windows and said, right, see you here tonight at 8 o'clock. Well, of course, I had no choice. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was going But to. how like him also to know that it was seven and a half minutes? Absolutely. <laughs> like yeah, a sort of regiment well, Sergeant Major. Well, I had to walk you there to yeah. make sure Absolutely. you knew exactly where to go. Yeah, you didn't have a choice, that's right. <laughs> so John was marvellous, and after that, he shepherded me a, 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 a bit. I didn't realise he was shepherding me, but he let me... Christian books, Dempster, Finding Men for Christ, <laughs> and, um, and and others. Would you have um, called yourself a Christian at that point? I had access to, yes, oh, very definitely, uh -huh. very definitely. But what kind of Christian? My school chaplain was very high church mm -hmm. and had referred me as an ordinand because I was an ordinand from the age of 11. Goodness. And referred me to Wilfred Knox as chaplain, I who see. again was very high church. So that, and then, then I had been to Ewan. So that the, there were these two streams, really. I could have become an Anglo Catholic hmm. under Wilfred. Hmm. And. Um, was he um, concerned about you having gone to Ewan then? I don't think he knew about that okay. or understood that, but he knew I was in danger of getting into the clutches of the Christian Union. Oh. Um, yeah, he had me to tea and I was very shy, of course, and he was <coughs> very shy. He had a huge room with a tiny gas fire. You remember those little gas fires that had sort of pipe clay mantles <laughs> so you could just see a flame. You can fit one piece of coal in or something. <laughs> and, um, so we sat each side of this and I waited for him to say something. He gave me a cup of tea and then he reached down to the grate and picked up a plate with a crumpet on it and offered it to me. So I took it. So he said, half of that is for me. <laughs> 
And he was my supervisor when I was doing this Cambridge Certificate in Theology. Mm -hmm. And if I was feeling particularly naughty, I would add a bit to my essay saying, as old Bishop Knox of Manchester used to say, because I'd read his biography, that was his dad. <laughs> <laughs> and his eyebrows would go up and they'd look at me. <laughs> Yes. But there was no um, Christian Union rep in your college, was no, there? The, the, the one Christian Union member in the college had fallen away during mm. the back. Mm. So the three of us who arrived with some Christian allegiance had to run our own fresher squash, guided mm. by friends whom I knew through Ewan. Uh, mm -hmm. So was was the college a, a high church bastion then? No, not at all. So it was quite secular in a way? It wouldn't have accepted that description. Okay. Uh, you know, the chapel, a lovely red chapel, was kind of central to it. Right. But it had no very particular hmm. position on the scale. Hmm. So you, you actually have changed course from maths to doing theology. That's right. Had you begun to align yourself as an evangelical by that point? Oh, yes. Right. Oh, very much and, so. And would I, that largely be through John? Yes. I mean, I became the Kikyu Christian Union College representative mm -hmm. age 17 in my first year. Goodness. Yeah. Right. And with your, your fellow members of the Christian Union, was there concern about you doing theology? Because that was... Sometimes something that would sort of be a red I flag. Bash would have warned me about it. Right. And other, uh, other people would have, have warned me that it, for some people it, it <coughs> proved the shortest route to uh, undermining faith. Right. So how did you respond to that? <laughs> I determined it wouldn't. Right. Which... Bless Wilfred, he didn't attempt to do so. No, mm. he was aware of, he was, a, he loved Jesus. And he believed in the creeds, presumably. He loved Jesus and believed in the creed, absolutely. Yeah. And would, would Kikyu have had its Bible readings and talks at that time? Is that what, oh, yes, we had week a, by week? We had a weekly Bible reading in college, often taken by Basil Atkins. Oh, yes. Who was the, the university librarian, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, under, under librarian. That's it. Keeper of the Western Manuscripts, hmm. dear Basil. He um, was quite a Cambridge icon, wasn't he? I was appalled when I was writing the biography. I wrote to the library and said, could you send me a photocopy of any appreciation of Basil when he died? There just wasn't one. They'd, oh, taken, really? they'd taken, neither they nor the reporter had taken any notice. That's strange. Mm. But when I became a member of the Friends, and used to meet the librarian sometimes, he would give us lunch. I said to him, is Basil Atkinson remembered in the library? Oh, he'd say, remembered him? Well, I should think so. I could show you the wall we had to build in the Anderson room to protect the readers from Basil's laugh. <laughs> <laughs> So the 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 the, the Atkinson Memorial Laugh Memorial Wall. Memorial Wall, exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's wonderful. 
Timothy mentioned there that he'd been warned by Bash about taking a maths degree. Now, Bash was the name by which Eric Nash was universally known, and he was the one who'd set up and run the Christian youth camps for Scripture Union, particularly aimed at reaching those from private schools. They met at a school in the tiny Dorset village of Ewan Minster, and that is why they were thereafter always known as Ewan Camps. And they'd been instrumental in John Stott himself coming to faith, as they had done for countless others. So Timothy went to Ewan from towards the end of his time at school and continued through university right up until the time he was ordained. And he ended up doing a teacher's qualification at Cambridge after his undergrad degree, funded by the Church of England, because if he'd gone straight to Ridley Hall, which incidentally was the same theological college or seminary that John attended, Timothy would still have been far too young to be ordained. But he has fond memories of the Christian Union missions that took place at Cambridge, and he enjoyed remembering the time he was asked to do publicity for one of the mission weeks, uh, a time when they rented a loudspeaker car. So I drove through Cambridge saying, Mission in the University, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Barnhouse tonight, and so forth. And we drove through, and of course I wasn't really looking where we, where we were going. We drove up to Girton, uh, and before I knew what was happening, we were going down the drive into Girton, <laughs> with me still on the loudspeaker, and the thing turning round at the bottom, and, coming out again while our windows were being thrown up here and there to see what was happening. This bastion of women's uh, education. Absolutely, yes. Uh. And, uh, Did you, does history relate how many Girton students came to the mission? I'm afraid it doesn't, but some did. <laughs> some did, and of course, some, that 49, that was the mission that saw David Shepherd. Hmm. I could see him talking to John Collins under a street lamp uh, after one of the addresses. And John Stott was the chair of the mission, was he? Or No, he'd gone down then. Um, the great Stott missions were, followed this. In the 50s? We had, yes, we had the two Barnhouse missions, 46. Ah, so that, is that Donald Barnhouse from Philadelphia? It is. Right. Donald Gray Barnhouse, yes. Would... would he possibly have been an assistant missioner or I mean he would have been praying from London wouldn't he for those missions I imagine. But, he um, would and he may well have come up to take one of the uh, um, specialist meetings we had specialist meetings right for senior members and faculties and any number right any number I remember Barnhouse was um in '46, Barnhouse was deputed to speak to senior members at what at a, at a special meeting, and to the horror, really, of the organisers, he chose as his text, "I will spread dung on their faces." <laughs> <laughs> and then in '49, he was due to speak to them again, and the president, rather, with his heart in his mouth, said, "What is?" I thought I would speak on, I will spread dung. <laughs> so they had two doses of dung on their faces. And it's me. Amazing. That's very bold. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. But they were great, they were great times. <laughs> I mean, um, Hapgood, the Archbishop mm -hmm. of York, describes in his biography how it was 
at this point that he realised he had to commit himself to Christ. So he was an undergraduate then? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Wow. We did get huge numbers. Mm. But um, when, when do you get ordained then? Uh, 1950. Okay. Advent 1950. Which is the year that John becomes rector. That's right. Okay. Yes. So, um, where 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 do you go and do your curacy? St Paul's Northumberland Heath, which is a suburb to Erith on the banks of the Thames. Uh huh. And my vicar and I used to describe our flock as the North Heathen, which <laughs> was the sometimes too far wrong. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so did you do the sort of standard two or three years there? or Yes, I did the standard, more or less. I did two and a half, actually. Mm-hmm. And because I had had very little experience on the other side of the tracks, mm-hmm. at Ridley, they had said to me, in recommending you for ordination to Shabazz, um, we would make it a condition that you stay three years in your first curacy. Mm-hmm. So I can remember writing to them and saying, you asked this of me, circumstances have worked out that I actually want to leave after two and three quarters, and I feel honour bound to let you know mm. this. So they were happy with that, so mm. I did. It was Shabazz... Bishop of Chester? No, Rochester. Rochester. I knew it had Chester in it. Um, Okay. He was a a dear. And uh, even as a curate in the diocese, I was part of a small publicity group that he convened himself Mm -hmm. at his dining table. So we would arrive in good time and be sitting around his dining table waiting for him with the empty chair at the head. Mm. And you would hear him come, da-dum, da-dum the dog because he had wooden legs oh really <laughs> and he would come in and we'd all stand up and he'd get to the head of the table and he'd say uh, for what we're about to receive oh I thought we were going to have lunch <laughs> 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 yes. and then he asked me to become one of his honorary chaplains mm-hmm. in those days a bishop had to choose between a chauffeur and a domestic chaplain uh-huh he obviously had to have a chauffeur so that he relied on a small group who would come to him for a weekend over ordination, for I example, see. act as domestic chaplain for a short time. Mm. So did you become an incumbent in the diocese at that point? I've never been an incumbent. Oh, really? No. So, there's a, so what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, at Cambridge, the Kiku had links with what was called the Cambridge University Mission in Birmingham, uh-huh. which was a settlement. Right. And I had been and stayed there and helped for two or three weeks during the back. The idea was that you had some premises in which you ran clubs for the young people of the neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. And to help with the running of them, you had residents, mm-hmm. perhaps ten, and in this case, they would be from the Kikyu. I would come up when I was in charge of the mission and speak to a meeting of the Kikyu to try and attract people to come and... Right. Um, often medical students who completed their preclinical and were going to a London hospital mm-hmm. and wanted somewhere to live. And they would 
Do you have an evening a week to the club? In, in lieu of rent? Or, or no, as well as rent. Okay, yeah. <laughs> in, in lieu of a commercial rent. Right. And uh, because they liked it as their mm. Christian ministry. Mm. And it was a really did fellowship there. So I'd been asked to take this on because I was the only person the committee knew about who had any sort of links. Mm. I was quite unsuitable for it in many ways because, <laughs> of course, our boys, it was all nearly all boys at that stage, came girls later, their chief interest was sport, mm. which isn't my forte, <laughs> but we managed. So how long were you working there? Two years as right. head. And then I handed over to my club leader, Andrew Pearsley, mm-hmm. who succeeded me. But I stayed on as honorary chaplain, right? which I could do because I'd gone to a non-parochial job. While he was working as the chaplain at the University Youth Mission in London, Billy Graham happened to be in the UK on one of his evangelistic tours. And so Timothy arranged for Billy to come and speak to his young people's group. John Stott, of course, was heavily involved in these mission trips that Billy Graham made. And at the time, he happened to be chairman of the literature committee for this particular trip. And so he asked Timothy to edit a new Christian magazine, one that was designed to offer pastoral help and instructions to new converts, people who'd just come to faith. And Timothy remained in that role for six or seven years and thoroughly enjoyed it. But I asked him if he'd ever thought about going to work in a parish. Shabazz wanted me to go to one of his parishes. Right. And there may have been one or two other approaches. Mm. But I was thrilled to be doing what I was right. doing. I had a burden for Christian literature right. and the power of print. Mm. And so when the time came, I moved on from there to the Church Pastoral Aid Society, <laughs> who had agreed that though they didn't have an editorial secretary, I could be that in all but name. <laughs> and they would give me a budget of £500 a year, <laughs> of which I could accumulate if I managed to make some publishing profit. So I did that then. And that was producing, what, booklets and... Yeah, producing booklets to begin with, and yep. then books. Right. And, um, and audiovisual aids, mm. and uh, film strips, the predecessor to DVDs. Mm. Mm. Journey into Life. Oh, yes. Not... Aids, yes, all this yeah. sort of thing. Little evangelistic yes. books. And, um... and so, um, all this time, I mean, John gets you to do the magazine. All but... this time, John was running a thing called Eclectic. Aha, uh-huh. so you were an eclectic. I was an original eclectic. Right. And so I would see him regularly there. And I could get past Francis. <laughs> order to so you were one of the very few who could do that. One of the very few in order to be able to see him. <laughs> and um, at some You point, had back channels. <laughs> at some point, I forget when... He would come and spend a day off with us. Where were you living at that point? We were living in Seven Oaks. Uh-huh. And he would come down and we'd walk in Dove Park mm-hmm. and my dear Arlette would feed him and it was lovely to have... And you met him then, didn't Yes, you? I remember as, as children and Uncle John coming to this visit. This went on after we moved to Norfolk. Mm-hmm. And there's a lovely story that I would take him to the bird reserve, mm-hmm. which isn't my scene again. <laughs> 
but we I knew he was what he would want. So we would walk through this bird reserve and he would listen. Then we'd meet the warden and he'd say... Um, the, uh, the warden of the bird reserve? Of the, of the right. bird reserve. And they would chat for a little and then he would say... Uh, I've just heard the yellow-bellied warbler <laughs> and the uh, warden would say, I don't think you've gathered on, they haven't arrived yet. So John would say, just come and listen. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he, he would introduce the warden to a bird he didn't know had already arrived in his reserve. <laughs> <laughs> astonishing. Uh, astonishing, really. Amazing. So you weren't converted to ornithology? I am what? John would call a failed ornithologist. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> the, the, yeah, I, in, it, well, actually, he was the failure, though, wasn't he? Because he failed to convert you. <laughs> well, perhaps that's right. There was... <laughs> when I was doing the biography, he would lend me his flat for a week at a time when he was abroad. Right. And I would go and live in his flat mm -hmm. and have access to anything I wanted except for a couple of drawers of a filing cabinet. But he said they're more private. Mm -hmm. But among them, there was a book from Lord Sani, one of the American Billy Graham mm -hmm. team, dedicated to John. I took it off the shelf, saved from, uh, from a failed ornithologist. <laughs> so I've used the phrase ever since. I know, and in our family, you're, you, you sometimes say that you like a bird on a plate rather yes. than a bird. Well, I said it to the warden. He said, turn to me after talking to John and said, you know, are you a, a keen bird watcher? I said, I love a bird on a plate of gravy. <laughs> Is he utterly appalled? <laughs> he was, rather. <laughs> I think John was a bit too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. There was the ongoing story of the snowy owl, wasn't there? That he was ah, the snowy owl. The snowy yeah. owl, yes. I kept telling John I could take him to a bird reserve in Norfolk and show him a snowy owl, <laughs> but that wouldn't do. No, it had to but be in the Arctic. You invited him, didn't you, to, to UEA to give a lecture on birds? Um, and that that was sort of semi-evangelistic, I think. It wasn't it? on birds. Oh, wasn't it? No. I was on the council of the Church of England Training College in Norfolk called Keswick Hall. Mm. And when under government regulations this was closed and united with the university, part of, we got a little money left out of it, and we founded a lecture called the Keswick Lecture. So I at the University of East Anglia. Yeah. So I said to John, to uh, the committee at one point, would you consider inviting John Stott to come? And, oh, they said yes. We'd love that. To my surprise, really. So uh, I busied myself at writing and sending details to all the evangelical parishes, saying, please come and support this. Across was Norwich Diocese. Were you, were you Bishop of Thetford at the time, is that? No. No? Archdeacon? No? I suppose I was Archdeacon of, of Norwich. Norwich. Yes, I yeah. think so. And, uh, and that was the appointment under Morris Wood. That's right. Yeah. So it was great that they, they flocked in and we couldn't start the lecture because they were sitting on the stairs and everything. <laughs> and uh, uh, so... John spoke to us, I'm pretty sure, about the scriptures. Yes, mm. I think the so. The New English Bible yes. had, I think, recently appeared. Mm. Yes. I wish I had a copy of what he said. Mm. Now. Well, you, you mentioned the biography. Let's talk about that because yes. um, you were telling me earlier that you were approached by his sort of advisory group. Yes. 
and they uh, wanted somebody to write a biography and John was part of that process. Was it Richard Buse who wrote to you? He was chairman of Eggs, not Eggs. Age. Age. His advisory group. Advisory group of elders. Right. Which John had set up so that he had a, a sounding board to talk to and mm -hmm. advise him about the, the endless invitations mm -hmm. to go overseas that poured in. Mm -hmm. And they had said to him, which he didn't want really at all, that uh, there would be biographies, whether he wanted them or not. Right. And that there was something to be said for finding a biographer in whom he would have some confidence. And it was to be posthumous, and of course it was to be bought one volume. But when I had got more than enough material yeah. for the first volume, IVP as publishers agreed that we could move into a second volume right. and be expensive. We'd had a meeting earlier with um, Hodders and IVP and one or two other Christian publishers mm -hmm. to see, because it was quite a coup for the publisher mm. to take it on. But IVP seemed to be the right people. In the mm. And John had always published with them, hadn't John, he? Yes, mm. among others. But he, I mean, that was the primary one. Yes, I, it was the primary yeah. one, that's right. Um, so you've got two volumes of your biography sitting in front of you now. I mean, that—that that is quite a mammoth achievement. I mean, were you were you keen on doing it at the beginning? Oh yes, I was thrilled at being asked. Mm -hmm. Had you written a biography before? No, no. <laughs> I I had written, interestingly, a biographical introduction to a sort of fest shift. Uh huh. Oh, was that gospel in the modern it world? Was. Right. And I think it was possibly on the basis of that that okay. they thought I might be able to do this. And um, Because at that point, presumably, your writing was primarily known in terms of your hymn writing. I think that's right. So perhaps they thought you'd write a song about him. Well, possibly. <laughs> and indeed, I did write two or three songs for John. Well, I guess they'd known that you'd written... Well, you have written other books, haven't you, right. as well? Yes, and I have written I think thought of you as a literary sort of yes. person. They knew I had a burden for the printed word. Mm. Yes. So you, you can't do that immediately, is that I right? I couldn't do that. I said, I'd love to do this, but I really can't start trading months till I retire because I'm a busy bishop, but it wouldn't be fair. Right. And so you're a bishop of Thetford. I'm a bishop of Thetford, such a good story. So um, that, we're talking, what, about 1989? 80, right. So volume one comes out in 98, or is finished in 98. It's finished in 98, that's right. So 10 years. It was 10 years. It was, a it ten, was year 10 years project. to do the research. And masses of material, of course. And presumably when, when you finished volume one, you, I was halfway through. Right, so you had all the materials you needed pretty much for volume two, did you? Well, I was halfway through. I had enough to make me feel I could go on. I can remember lying in the bath of an evening and saying to myself, how shall I ever finish this? Mm. Um, but we, 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 we went on. Yeah. And it was a lovely retirement project. And it was fact, a lovely retirement it? project. Mm. And my dear Arlette supported me in it and understood by, that I would go up to London for a week at a time mm. and this kind of thing. And people would come and see you and, and you'd would interview and them. Or... And, yes, and, and I had a quite a considerable 
because I'd built up very considerable files, which at the end went to the Lambeth Palace. Uh, with John's, John's papers? With John's papers. Right. And how long after Volume 1 did Volume 2 come out? Shall I have a look in this Volume 2? Yes. This says 2000 has finished, but is published. What is published? Uh, here we are. 2001. Yes, so I got half it, you see. And what, of course, was, was made it possible, really, was that Francis had said at the beginning, I will type for you. Goodness, mm. right. Yeah. So I didn't realise that. So not only did she type all John's books, but she typed this she as well. She typed this as well. And Goodness. did she give you access to John himself? Or was he able to meet with you? Oh, yes. I mean, you had your own back channels. You didn't need Francis for that. I, <laughs> I had a week with John by arrangement at the Hooksies, in right. which he was going to give me two sessions each day, each mm. of about two hours, wow. in which we could do just what you and I are doing right. now. Mm. And in between each session, I would make notes of what mm. I wanted the next one to cover. I mean, and did Francis he find that difficult? Together. Not at all, I don't think. He rather enjoyed it. OK. But, I mean... As we do. There's something about him that is naturally or decidedly self-effacing. Oh, absolutely. So, but having agreed to it, okay. he threw himself into right. it. He, was, he saw that I, uh, the only way I could do it would be with his help. Mm. But it was agreed, as I think I say in the introduction, that though he would read everything I wrote in draft, mm -hmm. because I didn't want him when the book came out, to have um, unpleasant surprises. Mm -hmm. In the end, though I would listen to his comments, the decision what to publish read entirely with me. Mm. And, and you say also, don't you, that your purpose is primarily to be a, a sort of a history of record rather than evaluation? Yes, two things really. Um, as you rightly say, a history of of record, being in touch with people, including John himself, mm. who won't be available to future biographers, but also a pastoral, mm. and somebody who owes a great deal to Christian biography. The belief that John has so much to teach us, as indeed his legacy at, mm. at the moment, is amazing to us. I was mm. trying to, when we got to the centenary last year, wasn't mm -hmm. it? I was working on something about his, his legacy and dividing it up into his personal example, then the example of his ministry, including the creativity of the pioneering worker also. Mm -hmm. Which was astonishing and copied across the world in other city mm -hmm. centres, and then the uh, the structures that he set up, like EFAC and CEC and this mm -hmm. kind of thing, and then of course the books that we still have. Mm. People sometimes think that's the only legacy, but it's not by mm. any means. And uh, and then lastly, the extraordinary way in which he influenced so many Christian leaders across the mm. world. 
I hope you agree it's been fascinating hearing Timothy Dudley Smith's story and remarkable at the age of 95 his memories and insights are still so fresh and sparklingly clear but there's more so please join us for the next episode when we'll hear more about his experience writing the two volumes of John Stott's biography and also listen to Timothy's take on the controversies and challenges that Stott faced particularly at later points in his ministry. Thank you so much for listening to The Stott Legacy. Thank you also to my Langham Partnership colleagues who have helped to make this podcast a reality. And special thanks to Vic Marseille from Langham Partnership UK and Ireland for all her hard work in editing and producing each episode. Please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, recommend it to friends, and above all, tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.